Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh's School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Emma Aviat, a PhD student of English literature and current postgraduate web and communications intern. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Charlotte Bousseau, Senior Lecturer in Translation Studies. After a short chat about her journey to Edinburgh, I get to ask Charlotte about her current research project on the ethical demands of translating accounts of trauma like gender-based violence. This project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, focuses on the testimonies of non-English speaking women and explores the ethical role played by translation when transmitting these experiences. I get to hear about the dynamic and collaborative demands of this project, which will result in the creation of a multilingual documentary, as well as provide good practice guidelines for translators, translation companies, filmmakers, and charities. We also have some fun chatting about some of Charlotte's past research on the uncanny nature of dubbing and discuss the many actors who have lent their voices to stars like Julianne Moore and Sean Connery. Overall, the conversation was really interesting and very informative. So thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for joining me today on Beyond the Books. It's so great to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, could you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to the University of Edinburgh? Yes, so I originally am from France and I studied at uh, the University of Aix-en-Provence where I was doing uh, English and American uh, literature and history and linguistics uh, and, and so on. Um, and from, from doing that, I got the opportunity to go on a year abroad when I was doing my maîtrise, so my master's. And I, because I was really, I was interested in Virginia Woolf, uh, they sent me to London so I could go to the British Library. Uh, and uh, when I was in London, I took some courses in translation. When I was in France, I didn't particularly like translation because I, the way it was taught was very much right or wrong. So there was not a lot of room for creativity and understanding why you chose this as opposed to something else. But the way it was taught, uh, it was the University of North London. I really liked it. So I moved on to I wanted to do a master's in translation studies uh, because I thought I wanted to be a translator. And while doing my master's at Manchester, I realized that I really liked theories and I wanted to do more. So I decided to do a PhD and I went to London, um, UCL. Uh, That's why I studied. So I was working on Virginia Woolf in translation. And I, as I was finishing my PhD, I was very lucky. Uh, a position opened at Edinburgh University in 2004 and, and I got it and wow. so I, I moved here had never been to Scotland uh, only stayed in London and Manchester uh, but yes I've been here since 2004 so it's a wee while now I've been to Aix-en-Provence and it, from what I remember it's just so beautiful and not that Edinburgh isn't beautiful but I imagine it's a little bit of a change from Aix-en-Provence yeah. to, to the UK <laughs> a little bit. Yeah I think you know because I first went to London so it's the, and then I did Manchester so it's slowly I moved <laughs> up and um, 
But I think there's a vibe in Edinburgh that is very much like Aix-en-Provence, mm. you know, this very cultural city. Uh, of course, the weather is not the same. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, with festivals and um, it's a small city as well, which I, I like. I don't like two big cities. So I like London, but it was too big for me. Um, yeah. Um, I think Edinburgh is more human size of a city. Yeah, I agree 100%. Once you're here and if you can do with the weather, then it's a really welcoming and fun place to be. So that's yeah. great. So you've been here since 2004, but um, more recently you've been awarded AHRC funding for your practice-based project that considers the ethical demands of translating gender-based violence. So firstly, for everyone who's listening who might not be exactly familiar with what the term gender-based violence mean, could you give a little bit of an explanation of the term? Yes, yeah, so I think in, in really simple terms, gender-based violence is violence that is directed at someone because of their gender. Um, it can be physical, and I think a lot of the time when you talk to people about it, they immediately think that violence is physical. Uh, but gender-based violence can be physical, but it can be sexual, emotional, psychological violence, uh, including coercive control. And... It's commonly perpetrated by men on women and girls, but men also suffer from uh, are victims of gender violence as well. So, um, yeah, I think in a sense, it's, it's violence that is committed because of somebody's gender. Okay, that's, yeah, it is one of those things that I think we often have just one specific view of, but it's good to know that there is that nuance in the term and that it means more than just maybe the very direct black and white um, image yeah. that we might have in our mind. Yeah. Um, so w- what led you to this topic? And how did you get there from your translation studies? What are some of the plans that you have in this 18 months that you'll be working on the project? Yeah, so I think when it comes to my research, you know, since since my PhD days, I've always been interested in, uh, in voice. And at first, voice was literary voices. And particularly when I was studying Virginia Woolf, you know, with the narrative technique and the voices of the narrator and characters in books. So I started to be interested in voice in these terms. And then I moved on with my work and it was more about dubbing because when you look at voice in dubbing, it's not just what's written or the linguistics aspect. It's also the audio and the visual. And that gives you a more comprehensive overview of what voice is. And then um, as I moved on with my, my life and you know, having had experience myself, gender-based violence, I, I am, it is a, very, a topic that is very important to me. And I thought that I could, you know, if, if I worked on voice, but not just fiction, so not on, act, I mean, actors are real people, but, you know, characters in film are not, but on testimonies of real people or on real stories, I, I felt that my work could have more impact and could help. So I came to this topic a, a few years ago, I, I started to to research it and trying to see, you know, what is being done, particularly when it comes to documentaries, because I'm also interested in different types of testimonies, but because of, of, of my expertise in audiovisual, I wanted to focus particularly on that. And I found that there are many documentaries that, that will talk about gender-based violence, and these are translated, but it can be quite hard to get hold of a translation because documentaries as opposed to films, don't, if there's not a lot of profit, uh, 
uh, in documentary filmmaking. Uh, and a lot of documentaries that would be translated would be translated for festivals. And festivals would uh, commission a translation, and then you don't really know what happened to these subtitles. Uh, and there were other issues around that. And I, I'm, I wanted to make sure that because we are dealing with vulnerable people uh, and you don't want translation to, to take away their voice, we want to make sure that, you know, that they are ethically translated, which by that I mean sensitively, like with respect, uh, because they are real human beings and we we want to to acknowledge you know that it is challenging for someone to come and tell tell their stories and and they also need to be celebrated these women in my case it's women but no anyone who suffered from gender-based violence so i wanted to to do a project that would uh, look more at the way we translate women and i thought that it would be more interesting to do make a, com, a documentary and that way we, we we can see how to translate them in the best way that, that that we can so i applied for funding to do that so to make the documentary and to experiment with different ways of translation to make sure that we listen ethically to to the women that are speaking and also to make guidelines for people working together because we we have translators that are involved on the project we have directors and everybody has different reasons for doing this different expectations so we want to make sure that these align and that we work collaboratively um, on this project uh, and that we listen to one another and then we we have these guidelines so for directors translators interpreters also for the translators themselves giving them you know advice uh, on how to also how to deal with you know what they're doing they give them tips on on how to uh, to to work ethically and and also for charities on how to work with language professionals so translators interpreters and directors uh, if if they are in the position of uh, providing people you know for for a documentary and um, so so that's the the main these are the main goals uh, of, of the research. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there is just a wide scope, so many different groups to consider in that, so many different people involved in the translation yeah. of these voices. So having those guidelines will hopefully make that process so much easier for everyone else going forward. So it, you, you speak about this topic in your article, Translating Gender-Based Violence Documentaries, Listening Ethically to the Voices of Survivors, um, where you talk about the rising cultural awareness around gender-based violence. What are some of the places that we're seeing this increased awareness and what could that mean for society's treatment of it? Alternately, what are some of the areas that we still see a scarcity of these testimonies? Generally, in a, particularly in the past few years, you know, with Me Too, there is more awareness uh, of, of gender-based violence. Sadly, also you know, with the refugee crisis in Europe, refugee camps, and we, we've been talking about violence more. And also the, a lot of films, actually, or television series deal uh, with gender-based violence. So I think as, as readers or of news, or if you read novels, or, or viewers of films or television series, we are exposed to a lot of examples and we can see how endemic it is. And now we now realize, for instance, that you know, things that were done 20 years ago in the business showbiz industry, well, it was never right. 
you know, but now people are getting like, oh yeah, actually it's not okay. So, so there is, I like to think that people are more aware, but there is still, I think this generalization, I guess, that violence is physical. And what's interesting in, in translation, like the different terms that we would use, you know, for instance, if you translate in French or, you know, if you were to translate in Somali, you know, you, you would have to choose particular words that will have specific connotations. And I know, for instance, in France, but things are changing as well, that if you translate like abusive relationship in, in French, people would mostly think that, you know, it's physical and we we need to wear more awareness around that that you know violence against women or or, or gender based violence in in general is not just physical and uh, and it's I think it's important to to talk about it to make sure that we understand it you know as a whole and that we understand that different cultures will have different ways of understanding violence as well and when you're Translator and interpreter, you should be aware of these cultural differences, but maybe other people are not aware of them. So, for instance, I mean, I don't work in interpreting studies, but because a, a lot of what I'm talking about in a documentary is about interpreting, because we, we're talking about women who have sought help or support, uh, didn't speak English, so had to be interpreted. I was told of, you know, cases, for instance, where a woman in her culture, she's not supposed to look, to make eye contact with a man. And she's at the police station and she's being interviewed by a male officer and she's not looking at them or him because she's in her culture, she's not, she's not allowed. Now, for someone that is not aware of this, they could think that, oh, she's hiding something or she's being a bit dodgy or, you know. So people, you know, need to be aware that there are different ways of talking or behaving depending on the cultures that, that you're in. Uh, and that will have an impact on, on the way things are being understood. Uh, because if that officer would say, you know, would write that, you know, the person is not expressing themselves clearly, you know, that they're not looking at, at me, you know, then that, that could lead to a decision being made that could be catastrophic for the person. So we need more awareness of what is gender-based violence and that it's not just happening in one country, it's happening in all over the world and that, that they are the cultural differences that need to be taken into consideration. I mean, that is such a fascinating point to think about the fact that, you know, we might be learning about one specific form of gender-based violence, specifically maybe with things like the Me Too movement, but there's such, that's good, that's just going to be one form of it. Yeah. We need to keep raising awareness about all the other ways that it can, can look. Why is it important to establish a methodology for making this impossible task closer to being possible? And what are some of the aims that you should be having? So with, with my, my work, we try to find methods, you know, that can be used by, by other researchers. So uh, the, the different methods that we are using in, in the, the project is, for, first of all, it's, well, it's practice-based. So we're actually making a film and we are translating it as we go. But we've also had focus groups where we, at the beginning of the project, when we had all the stakeholders and trying to understand, you know, why we're here, what how to work ethically together, what do we need? So what do I need as a language professional? What do I need as a director or as a charity or as a survivor to make sure that I'm safe uh, and this is a, a good environment to work 
together. Um, and we also, the questionnaires as well, at these focus groups, I had questionnaires to ask further questions to people um, about their expectation, their experience, how they felt also, because one of the, what I'm really interested in as well is how people feel when they work on this project and particularly how translators and interpreters feel, because we don't really think about it. Um, and I mean, it's, it's important because my focus is on supporting survivors, but also on supporting translators and interpreters because the work that they do is very challenging. And so speaking with them, trying to understand uh, through questionnaires, you know, what, what they want, what they need, and also um, asking audience, showing audience some of the film and getting feedback and incorporating that. So that there's different methods throughout that I hope other researchers can also you know, take inspiration from. Uh, so we, we have a website and we will post on the website um, the questionnaires, uh, not the field in one, but you know, so that people can see the type of question that they can ask. Offering resources to, to, to people uh, who work with similar topics. Um, mm -hmm. Could be different medium as well. It could be, it doesn't have to be film. I mean, it's very important for my project, but anyone who translates uh, even a, a novel, you know, even if it's not real, if you if you translate a novel that has you know rape scene in them, and if it's described graphically, you know, you need you need some support, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point to think about. To not only make these practices set up to protect the people giving their testimonies, but those who are recording it and helping that voice come to light. So yeah, safeguarding is very important in the project. Not only like the, the, the survivors because you, you want you don't want to re-traumatize them, but also people working on the project because a, a lot of a, a lot of people, whether they are directors or translators, they, they may have been have experienced gender-based violence and it could be triggering, you know, for, for them to to do this and I think a lot of the time people who have had the experiences they want to help and they do and then they find themselves having mental health issues so some of one of the outcome of this focus group as well was to we realized that we really need to offer some maybe if it's even if it's short but gender-based violence training for everybody who's working on um, on the the projects, uh, particularly the the translators and the, the directors and and myself, so gender based violence training, but also some like uh, like a mental health you know self care kit you know what to do and also unconscious bias training because I think that's also something that we really need to to tackle um, as well. So uh, every step of the project, there are new things that come up and I think, yes, we really need to do that. And then in the guidelines, that's what we're going to say to people. Like, you know, if you hire someone that is going to work on something that is sensitive or dealing with traumatic material, you have to provide them with some support. And also, like, there's the, the more informal uh, where we can, you know, meet, and, you know, after every week or every other week uh, to discuss as, you know, together how we feel about, you know, so have that space. Uh, that we can use to um, to talk about informally. I think it's important, but the, there's also a formal level that we need to support everybody 
Uh, and that's very important. Yeah, I, I guess it's hard not to look at everyone participating in this as a holistic person, not just a job and not yeah. just like there to fulfill a role, but a, an aware and active person with feelings. Yeah. And I, I found also that it, it's very hard to make sure that everybody is okay and well. Uh, but I think the more the most important thing is to give people choices. Um, and for instance, so usually when you're subtitler, you will never meet the people that you are subtitling because it's it's not done. You know, you the film is made, uh, you subtitle. Um, but because it's 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 a project that. We do everything at the same time. Um, I've given the choice to the call them the ex service users from this charity. Um, I've asked them, you know, do you want to meet the translators or not? And you know, if they say no, you know, or do you want the subtitler to be male or female? Uh, and some would say no, only female. Some would say no, male is okay. But at least we've given them a choice, which I think is really important particularly when you deal with people who have, you know, suffered. I think being given a choice is, is really empowering. So that's what we're trying to do with the project. So you're focused on this article on the translations done through the medium of film, and you point out that there are often two ways these translations can be done, either with subtitles or with voiceovers and dubbing. Um, what are the specific barriers that arise when working with either of these methods of translation? Yes, so subtitling, as you know, is is written, um, and I mean we usually speak faster than we read, and because of reading, you know, different reading speed, it's we we have to when we subtitle, we have to condense what people are saying because it's very rare that you can actually translate verbatim because there's only a certain amount of characters that can go on the screen so that people with an average you know, reading speed, can read. And a lot of the time, uh, the words that are going to be erased are markers of emotions or adjectives or repetition, or if there are mistakes, maybe let's say grammatical mistake or you know something that could indicate that someone is being emotional, for instance, that would be corrected or that would be you know, erased. So I'm, I'm interested in looking at, you know, if you apply the, the traditional way of subtitling, are you somehow silencing that person or are you, are you really conveying, you know, all the emotion that that person is conveying? It's very hard because with subtitling, you can hear and people will argue, you know, you can see the face, you can hear what they're saying. I don't think there's not a lot of research on that. And I personally think that, you know, because I have Spanish as a language as well, and I can understand some Italian, some Portuguese, you know, some languages I might be able to say, yes, this person is very upset, I can see it. But there are languages that I don't know at all. And I, I don't think I can, or maybe I can get generally, but maybe not the nuances. Um, so I think with subtitling, yeah, the, the main barrier is that you, you have to cut down. And in these cases, I think because we, we're talking about it's people who it's already very challenging for them to, to tell their story. You, know, you need to find ways of making it, of translating it as sensitively or ethically as possible. With voiceover, so the argument for voiceover is that because it's oral, and so basically you hear the beginning of somebody speaking their language, but it's lowered down, and then you have a voice on top of it, like the, in our case, the English voice that will say what the person is saying. 
So because it's oral, you could have as much, but usually this, you are not supposed to show emotions. You have to be quite neutral. Voiceovers are quite neutral. And in terms of silencing people, I find that if, if you lower the sound of the original and you speak over someone, I find that quite problematic. But that's how it's done. Uh, and we, with the project, we want to find ways of experimenting. So usually it's only one voice that does all the, all the voices. So what we may try to do is if we have four survivors have four different voices, but the, the idea is that we will experiment with subtitling and, and voiceover. So it's going to be two separate films. Uh, and that before we finish them, we will show some examples to audiences um, and ask for feedback. Ask people, so, so we've done this. Usually this is not what is done. What do you think? Is it, does it work? It doesn't. And some of this audience will be the women because we want them to be involved as much as possible in the process. And initially, I think I, I had a bit of a too much either or, I mean, subtitling or voiceover. But I think we'll have to have two because voiceover is very good in terms of accessibility. You know, so, so if you have people have impairment in their vision, they can still watch documentary. And if they don't read also, because them, so our audiences might be people who do not read uh, English, but understand it. So for these people, we would it's better to have a voiceover. So I think we will have to, but we will want to find ways of experimenting and to, to make sure that we hear these voices as, as, as best as we can. Obviously, it's translation, so it can never be exactly the same. But it's this, this focus on ethics and respect and sensitivity. And once we've experimented and we found our solution, then we can explain in the guidelines what, what we think will work best you're now exploring real life accounts of translation, but before this, you explored fictional accounts through movies or through literature before that. So in particular, in your article, Voice in French Dubbing, the case of Julianne Moore, you look at French dubbing of the actress Julianne Moore, who has had 11 French voices since the beginning of her career, as well as the fact that her French designated voice, Ivana Coppola, also dubs other actresses wholly unrelated to Julianne Moore, which is it was such a weird thought to think about this, that other people will not be able to connect one voice with one actor every time they go to a to a movie and see them. Um, so you write about how this can evoke the feeling of the uncanny. Why do you think this feeling occurs? And what are some of the features that dubbing can create? Or how can it counter that feeling? I was really, you know, when I was writing about this, I was really trying to weigh a way of describing how does... How do you feel when, I mean, in, in my case, uh, where, because I'm French and everything is dubbed in France, I mean, things more and more are subtitled because it's cheaper and I think more people speak English and they want to listen to English. But the mainstream is still to dub. So when I was young, everything I would watch, you know, was dubbed. Uh, and I think when I was just 19 or 20, I, I watched the film with Sean Connery and... Uh, and it was the Avengers. And he spoke English with a Scottish accent and I couldn't believe it. I felt, why is he faking this accent? It sounds awful, but it was his real voice. And it really disturbed yeah. me because I was like, Christian Connery doesn't speak like that. <laughs> and yes, he does. And you know, 
and then you know when i read more about sean connery that's exactly what you know people would say you know even if he's a spanish character in highlander he speaks he speaks with a and um a scottish accent so he, he always has his accent even if he's playing all sorts of of characters but for a french person he has a french voice with no accent because a lot of the time uh, when you choose dubbing voice you take people who have neutral accent not to anchor them in like you know particular areas of france so i found that extremely disturbing uh, and, and then i was trying to find a way of describing it then yes you know this feeling of the uncanny like you you thought you knew something and then actually you don't uh, so for uh, Julianne Moore, it's it's a bit different because um, I'm, I'm, I was looking at you know the, the various voices that that she has in France, uh, and it was quite helpful for me at some point. Like when I was presenting this talk, I would just put pictures, you know, of these different actresses, and you had Julianne Moore in the center, and then you had all these voices, and then these voices were also attached to other actresses. So um, I think it's. For instance, the year I chose, you know, she she was in four films, so there was a Hunger Games, uh, Nonstop, Still Alice, and The Seventh Son, and actually there was a fifth film, A Map of the Stars, but it wasn't dubbed. Uh, it was only subtitled, so I couldn't use this one. But these four, she has different voices. Of course, you know the voice actor, they they are actors, so they play on their voice. You know, it's not like you know if they are because Kate Blanchett, I think they and Julianne Moore on some film they have the same voices or Emily Watson, and it's not exactly the same voice because the person is making is playing with their voice. They actors, but when I was looking at them for my for the piece that I was writing, it's pretty clear that it's different voices. Uh, and I think it's disturbing. For me, it's disturbing in terms of identity. Uh, because if you say, I love Julianne Moore, and you've only watched her in the dub, well, is it really her that you like? You know, what about the voice actor that has been dubbing her on different occasions? So that, you know, this, this whole idea of you know, of an actor, you know, people loving uh, actors, but if you watch them in the dub, it's not really them. So you, you can't really say, I love the voice of Julianne Moore. If if you only watch her in the dub, you can't actually, you, you, you can't say that, but people say it. So I, I find it quite fascinating. Uh, and, and I think France is very well known for doing that. I mean, other countries apparently don't do it as much, but it, it depends who's available. Uh, so. Ivana Coppola, who's the, the main voice, she would have been doing something else at the time, so she couldn't be involved. So they gave it to you know, other voices. And also, I think, because in France, I think with dubbing in general, in that case, I think voices are can be chosen in terms more in terms of character type. So in one particular film, like uh, The Seventh Son, she plays a witch. And her voice is very stereotypical of what you think a, a witch should sound like. But it's, I mean, I don't know how, many, how often we have encountered witches and we know how they sound like. Um, yeah. But if you think about like Walt Disney's kind of, you know, which is like the very stereotypical with high pitch and yeah. you know, like, <laughs> yeah. disturbing. And that's what Ivana Coppola does. And it's, to me, it was far too stereotypical. 
it, it was too extreme. I couldn't really engage. And of course, with now the technology of being able to change. So I'm watching the film and I'm listening in English and then I swap the voice. And it's, it's really shocking when you do that. But if you watch the film and, and watch another one three months later, you may not have that experience. Uh, but I think it's still, it's still uncanny because if you think about it, having an actor dubbed by 11 different people, what about them? What about their identity? Um, yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting because it is that barrier almost between the viewer and the connection that they could make parasocial or whatever it is to that actor that is already tenuous because of the fact that you don't actually know the person and then your own mm. idea of it is then doubled on top of with another person who I, I for like Ivana Coppola who's well known for playing Julian Moore do people know what she looked like like is she famous no. in her own right because that's no. quite interesting too I think what what usually happens that people who are uh, voice talent or voice actor they're not well known because I think that would be a level of distraction for people if they you know but uh, I think in recent years they you know if you if you google her name you will find a few articles about her even like a YouTube video where you can see her where she explains what she does so there's been a bit more recognition um because also like the it's dubbing the someone is is a lot of work uh, and dubbing is is quite an expensive type of translation you know because you have to redo the the whole voice um, voice track uh, it's not like subtitling where you add on it and it's cheaper it's quicker so i, I think that in the past few years uh, i there was a film it was actually on netflix for a while that was called being george clooney Mm, I think I heard about that, yeah. And it was all, well, not all of them, but many of his voices all around the world. So the, the, the director was traveling to India, to France, to Germany. It was really interesting because when you, when you look at these actors, of course, they don't look nothing like George Clooney. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of them, um, a lot of them are not known at all. Uh, or, or they may be theater actors so, so they, they, they they would they would be playing but then on the big screen on a small screen they're not so small screen they're not very well known and it's it's a problem as well because when you have someone that is paid millions to play like george clooney the voice is actor is not play is not paid very much uh, but they are facilitating that and it's only because they it's dubbed that making so much money at the box office um so i think there was at some point a few years ago as well uh, some um, dubbing actors that that were t talking about that particularly in germany and saying you know well you know why i give my jo voice to johnny depp but i'm paid like tenths if that <laughs> 100 of of what is is paid and and that's the problem i think with translation as well in general you know like even like translator if you read a translated book you will not see the name of the translator on the cover for instance it's just this illusion that you know it's it's the original and uh, that's what fascinates me a lot in translation and a lot of people don't think about it they they think oh you know i'm, I'm reading i don't know murakami uh, I've read all his books, but I don't read it. I haven't read his books. I've read the English and the French translations. I haven't read the original. 
for what I know could be very different, but people don't really think about that. And that's like part of my my job, and and this project is raising awareness. Like you know, what what does translation do? You know, what does interpreters do? Are they impartial? Are they neutral? Is it what we really want? Are they should they be invisible? Should we see them? How should we see them? Um, and subtitles as well. People say you know the best type of subtitles are the ones that you don't see. But you know, it's still a translation, so we, I don't think we should pretend that it's not. Yeah, it is really fascinating because there are so many people that are asked to disappear in order for the effect to, to come forward, either the voice of the actor or the translator. And then this, in the end, it's like hiding a collaboration that is, that is such an essential part. And that kind of, I guess, brings me back to your project which is involving so many levels of collaboration and you spoke on this a little bit but I know that you're working with Sahelia Scottish-based charities as well as the filmmaker Ling Lee language professionals recruited via the specialist company Screen Language and then the survivors themselves and then there's the other element where you're going to be screening it and asking the audiences to Mm. participate it sounds like so what do you think of the role of collaboration really is in this project and how do you think that it can affect the outcome of it I yeah, I think you know, as an academic, I have uh, ideas of you know how things are done, maybe how they should be done. But at the end of the day, I'm not a practicing translator. I, I have translated, but I haven't done any translation in a long time. And I wish I had time because I really enjoy translation. But I only translate texts, you know, that I give to my students, you know, at the moment. So I'm I don't work as a translator. I don't work as an interpreter. I'm not a film director. I don't work in a charity. So I'm talking about things that I think I know, but I have a limited knowledge. The only way I can really know is by talking to people, asking them, uh, and then they can tell me about you know, how it works for them, their experience and what they want, what they need, because I, I don't think it's fair to, as an academic to think, well, this is what they need to do, but you've not asked them. I've got biases as well, you know, about, you know, what I think, how things are or things should be. So I think for me, the only way of doing something was, it can only be collaborative because that's the only way that we'll understand each other's perspective because there are a lot of apprehensions, you know, not just from the survivors, but also from the, the people who work in the charity. You know, there are some ideas that people have about others, how they will work. I think what came out of the focus group and that some people thought that filmmakers were exploitative because they had that experience. So we need to make sure that these people don't think like that anymore because it's not true of all filmmakers. So it's making sure people can give their opinions, tell us what they need, I mean, there's no point for me try writing guidelines if people don't need them. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's so it's also asking people, directors, so what kind, what do you want to see in the guidelines? What kind of things do you want us to to think about? And ask that also to to charity workers and and, and the translators. So ask people what they need and and try to to find ways of give, giving it to them. I mean, at the end of the day, the gui- guidelines will be an ideal, ideal situation. A lot of it 
particularly when you work on a film and you are working with translators or even working with interpreters, not just on films, but it's money. You know, you need to be able to pay people and there is an ideal scenario and that's, you know, there's the reality. So we need to take that into consideration as well. And I, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's important to give voice to everybody that is involved in one way or another in the project. And every time that opens doors and they're like, oh, but we need to do this. Oh, and we need to do this. And it's, it, it makes things very complicated sometimes and complex, but I think at the end, then we can have guidelines that really work for people and people can really think, use them because they've also gave us uh, input. So they, they, they feel that, you know, they, they, they are invested. I think for things to work, we, everybody needs to be invested and feel like that we are not exploiting them. Yeah. Uh, we, we want to collaborate to make sure that when we do think in the future, they, they are done in ways that might be more ethical. And I'm not saying that things are not ethical all the time and that the situation is, you know, is, is dire. But, you know, there are instances where things are done not respectfully and too fast. You know, the, the, it's not the right language that is working. Even, you know, the, because when people think, so, so let's say you have someone who speaks Arabic from Syria and that person needs to have an interpreter. Let's say it's for an appointment at the hospital. Uh, they ask the agency and that person, the agency sends someone that speaks Arabic f from Egypt. And that's not going to be very helpful. And that's problematic. So that's the kind of thing. And it's not, people don't do this mistake by choice. It's just because there's a lack of awareness on linguistic differences and cultures, a lack of understanding of what the role of a translator or interpreter is. And I really hope that when the film is made, and hopefully, well, if we're lucky, we can show it at film festivals and um, it, it, can, it can be seen and people general public can have more understanding and then the guidelines separately can be used by people who actually work with translators and vulnerable people. I think that's one thing that's so interesting and fascinating to me about this project is that it's an academic pursuit that is also balanced with this artistic aim of producing a documentary and, and, and obviously documentary is is artistic and educational and also unfortunately has to be quite short in, in, in some senses. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of ask you as well about that and, and how, I know this might be maybe more something that you're relying on um, the director for, but how are you going to approach yeah. this sort of balance between the artistry of a documentary and the research and investigative goals of the project? Yeah, so so the director, Ling Li, um, I, I chose her uh, because I, I had seen some what she's, she's, she's done and she's a very sensitive filmmaker she's it's very poetic what, what, what she does and i i didn't want the film to be an example of investi investigative mm -hmm. journalism you know yeah. like you know facts this is what happened this is her story this is you know i i wanted a, f a film to be beautiful um and and poetic so i mean i can't say too much about 
how the film is going to look like because we are really still we haven't started filming yet we, we're going to start at the end of the month uh, and I think the next few weeks Ling particularly is going to be thinking a lot uh, you know about how we can she can film in such a way that it is informative but uh, it's also a celebration of these women's you know lives uh uh, and you know, using different ways, you know, visual way because film is is, is visual. So she's gonna find visual ways of of, of celebrating and and ma- making it poetical. Uh, because I think that's that's what she usually does, and that's what I wanted uh, for for the film. So some of the survivors will be fine being on screen but other we want to be anonymous so it's gonna also find different ways you know of um, because we you know, the last thing you want is putting people in danger we need to find ways of of filming them even if we can't film them uh, and and make it you know powerful and and beautiful and uh, and joyful as well you know these women are, are so brave and you want to celebrate them um, and there's also in the film we're also interviewing uh, language professionals, so the different people who work, interpreters, translators, subtitlers that have worked um, in the past, you know, with gender-based violence, know more about their day-to-day as well. You know how you know how did you feel when you were doing this? You know what kind of job is it really? Uh, and also some charity workers that will tell us more about like the the charity itself. Yes, yeah, so it will have multiple voices, and and we will try to to make it as um, as beautiful and poetic as possible. Well, it sounds like it is going to be a very complicated task, but well worth the effort at the end. And it, yeah. I'm sure we'll end up there. I'm very excited to see it myself. <laughs> so that'll be fabulous. Yeah. Because the project is until July 2023, mm-hmm. uh, and to conclude the project, we'll, we'll have a screening. So, oh, great. Okay. I'll make sure to send you an invitation. Please do. That was what I was going to ask. I, I know, I, I'm sure it's like a bit of pressure, but the, 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 the 18 months, I guess, sets up <laughs> somewhat of an idea for us already of when we'll be able to come and turn back and see it. Um, yeah, I, I I think yeah I think we we can we can manage for the first of July. I mean you, yeah. you know we there's so many people involved that you know it, yeah. it's it's hard to organize everything and we have different schedules and people have families and there you know and there things happen. Yeah. Um, so the ideal will be the the first of of July um, and I'm also. A few months before that, in February, I'll organize an event that would be more like um, impact event where the focus will be um, translating ethics in translation and interpreting. I have organized a few events in the past called Whose Voice Is It Anyway? Mm. Uh, where I always have a few academics talking about a topic. And then in the second part, it's seen more from a practical perspective. So I've usually... Uh, I, I would invite a writer and his or her translator, um, uh, and so I'm planning one for yeah end of January 2023, um, oh, wow. where we will also reflect on the film. I think because we'll be at that point, yeah. we should be 
reworking it based on the feedback that uh, the audience have given about the different techniques that, that we have used. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so a final question to kind of wrap up so I don't take too much more of your time. Um, mm-hmm. It's just one that I ask everyone who comes on, uh, myself being someone who's, I've been here since 2018 now, but I still feel like there's so much to see. So where is your favorite place in Scotland and why? So I, I, <laughs> I think I'm, my, it might be a bit, not boring my answer, but it's actually, I love the botanics in Edinburgh, oh, so you don't me. have to go very far. <laughs> I, I think I go there almost every other weekend. I love the botanic garden yeah. in Edinburgh. It's amazing. What's your favorite yeah. thing about it? I, I love seeing the changes in the season. I, I think it's, you know, it's, you know, to, to see one, one tree in particular that you, you see, you know, changing over and from one week to the next, because at the moment it's really amazing with all the magnolias. Um, and, and I went three weeks in a row and there was so much difference yeah. uh, in between these three weeks. Um, so yeah, I recently moved near the botanic, so I can go, I can go every day if I want to. Oh, that is, I, honestly, I think you've just decided my weekend plans for me. I think I'm going to go check out the Magnolia. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming today and joining me on the podcast. It was absolutely fascinating. I really loved hearing about all of this. I'm so looking forward to your project and your documentary. It'll be great to see. Thank you. Well, thank you for talking to me about it. Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh's School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures. Thanks so much for tuning in.